PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Preferred Therapy Providers, Incorporated. Preferred Therapy Providers is the largest rehabilitation network of its kind, representing private practice, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and speech therapists throughout the country by contracting on their behalf with PPOs, health plans, and third-party payers. For more information, visit www.preferredtherapy.com. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for May 2010. This month's research reports focus on particle repositioning maneuvers in the treatment of benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, kinematics during arm elevation following mastectomy, acute care physical therapists' discharge recommendations, effective analgesia on ease of care after hip arthroplasty, exercise-induced analgesia, exercise habits of PTs, PTAs, and student PTs, access to physical therapy services among medically underserved adults. Dynamic balance measures and functional performance in community-dwelling elderly people. Functional gait assessment in community-dwelling older adults. And validation of a new device to measure post-surgical scar adherence. This month's case reports focus on spondyloarthritis in a patient with unilateral buttock pain and Crohn disease. And walk-in recovery after locomotor training in a child with incomplete spinal cord injury. This month's perspective article focuses on the revised APTA Code of Ethics and Standards of Ethical Conduct for the Physical Therapist Assistant. The May issue also includes an article in PTJ's Health Policy in Perspective series, bundling acute and post-acute payment from a culture of compliance to a culture of innovation and best practice by Dr. Gerben de Jong. First this month, Effectiveness of Particle Repositioning Maneuvers in the Treatment of Benign Paroxysmal Positional Vertigo, a Systematic Review, by Dr. Janet Audrey Helminski, Dr. David Samuel Z, Dr. Imke Janssen, and Dr. Timothy Carl Hain. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Benign paroxysmal positional vertigo is the most common cause of vertigo. The purpose of this systematic review was to determine whether patients diagnosed with posterior canal benign paroxysmal positional vertigo based on positional testing and treated with a particle repositioning maneuver will show the resolution of benign paroxysmal positional nystagmus on the Dix-Halpike test performed 24 hours or more after treatment. Data were obtained from an electronic search of the Medline, Embase, and Sinol databases from 1966 through September 2009. The study topics were randomized controlled trials, quasi-randomized controlled trials, the diagnosis of posterior canal benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, treatment with the particle repositioning maneuver, and outcome measured with a positional test 24 hours or more after treatment. Data extracted were study descriptors and the information used to code for effect size. In two double-blind randomized controlled trials, 
the odds in favor of the resolution of benign paroxysmal positional nystagmus were 22 times and 37 times higher in people receiving the catalyth repositioning procedure than in people receiving a sham treatment. This finding was supported by the results reported in eight non-masked quasi-randomized controlled trials. Studies with limited methodological quality suggested that a liberatory maneuver was more effective than a control. There was no significant difference in the effectiveness of the liberatory maneuver and the effectiveness of the canalith repositioning procedure. The self-administered canalith repositioning procedure was more effective than the self-administered liberatory maneuver. And the canalith repositioning procedure administered together with the self-administered canalith repositioning procedure was more effective than when the canalith repositioning procedure was administered alone. The Brandt-Deroff exercises were the least effective self-administered treatments. The limitations of the study included the methodological quality of the studies, the lack of quality-of-life measures, and confounding factors in reporting vertigo. Randomized controlled trials provided strong evidence that the catalyth repositioning procedure resolves posterior canal benign paroxysmal positional nystagmus. Quasi-randomized controlled trials suggested that the catalyth repositioning procedure or the liberatory maneuver performed by a clinician or with proper instruction at home by the patient resolves posterior canal benign paroxysmal positional nystagmus. There were no data on the effects of the maneuvers on outcomes relevant to patients. A bottom line for this article is available in print and online. Lead author Dr. Janet Helminski is Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Midwestern University in Downers Grove, Illinois. Next, effects of mastectomy on shoulder and spinal kinematics during bilateral upper limb movement by Dr. Jack Crosby, Dr. Sharon Kilbreth. Elizabeth Dilk, Dr. Catherine Refshauga, Dr. Leslie Nicholson, Dr. Jane Beth, Dr. Andrew Spillane, and Dr. Kate White. Shoulder movement impairment is a commonly reported consequence of surgery for breast cancer. The aim of this study was to determine whether shoulder girdle kinematics, including those of the scapula, spine, and upper limb in women who have undergone a unilateral mastectomy for breast cancer, are different from those demonstrated by an age-matched control group. An observational study using three-dimensional kinematic analysis was performed. Twenty-four women who had a unilateral mastectomy on their dominant arm side or non-dominant arm side, as well as a control group of 22 age-matched women without upper limb, shoulder, or spinal problems, were measured while performing bilateral arm movements in the sagittal, scapular, and coronal planes. All of the women were free of shoulder pain at the time of testing. Using an electromagnetic tracking system, data were collected from the glenohumeral joint, the scapulothoracic articulation, and the upper and lower thoracic and lumbar regions of the spine. Women following mastectomy displayed altered patterns of scapular rotation compared with the control subjects in all planes of movement. In particular, the scapula on the mastectomy side rotated upward to a markedly greater extent than that on the non-mastectomy side, and women following mastectomy displayed greater scapular excursion than the control subjects. The findings suggest that altered motor patterns of the scapula are associated with mastectomy on the same side. 
Whether these changes are harmful or not is unclear. Investigation of interventions designed to restore normal scapulohumeral relationships on the affected side following unilateral mastectomy for breast cancer are warranted. A bottom line for this article is available online and in print. Four e-tables accompany this article online. Lead author Dr. Jack Crosby is Associate Professor in the Clinical Rehabilitation Sciences Research Group in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Sydney in Lidcombe, New South Wales, Australia. Next, patient risk of readmission is higher when acute care physical therapists' discharge recommendations are not implemented. By Dr. Beth Smith, Christina Fields, and Natalia Fernandez. Acute care physical therapists contribute to the complex process of patient discharge planning. As physical therapists are experts at evaluating functional abilities and are able to incorporate various other factors relevant to discharge planning, it was expected that physical therapists' recommendations of patient discharge location would be both accurate and appropriate. This study determined how often the therapist's recommendations for patient discharge location and services were implemented, representing the accuracy of the recommendations. The impact of unimplemented recommendations on readmission rate was examined, reflecting the appropriateness of the recommendations. This retrospective study included the discharge recommendations of 40 acute care physical therapists for 762 patients in a large academic medical center. The frequency of mismatch between the physical therapist's recommendation and the patient's actual discharge location and services was calculated. The mismatch variable had three levels, match, mismatch with services lacking, or mismatch with different services. Regression analysis was used to test whether mismatch status, patient age, length of admission, or discharge location predicted patient readmittance. Overall, physical therapists' discharge recommendations were implemented 83% of the time. Patients who had a mismatch with services lacking, meaning that the therapist's discharge recommendation was not implemented and recommended follow-up services were lacking, were 2.93 times more likely to be readmitted compared with patients who had a match. Some limitations of the study were that the study was limited to one facility and limited information about the patients was collected, and data on patient readmission to other facilities were not collected. This study supports the role of physical therapists in discharge planning in the acute care setting. Physical therapists demonstrated the ability to make accurate and appropriate discharge recommendations for patients who are acutely ill. This article is the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Cynthia Coffin-Zadai, and it will be the subject of a discussion podcast. A bottom line for this article is available online and in print. Lead author Dr. Beth Smith is postdoctoral fellow in the Balance Disorders Laboratory, Departments of Neurology and Behavioral Neuroscience at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Physical Therapists' Perceptions of Ease of Care in Patients Receiving Two Forms of Analgesia After Total Hip Arthroplasty by Dr. Michael Bourne, Dr. Jacques Shelley, Dr. C. V. Damaraju, Dr. Winnie Nelson, 
Dr. Jeff Shine, and Dr. David Hewitt. Pain management modalities that facilitate patient mobility may contribute to recovery after total hip replacement surgery. The aim of this study was to evaluate the impact of morphine intravenous patient-controlled analgesia and the fentanyl iontophoretic transdermal system on physical therapists' ability to complete care tasks for patients after total hip replacement. The data were from an open-label, randomized, multicenter active control phase 3B clinical trial. The settings were 52 U.S.-based teaching and community hospitals. The patients were 18 years of age or older, had an American Society of Anesthesiologists physical status of 1, 2, or 3, and were scheduled to undergo primary unilateral total hip replacement surgery. The patients were randomized to receive analgesia for up to 72 hours via the fentanyl iontophoretic transdermal system or morphine intravenous patient-controlled analgesia. All patients received the usual treatment administered by physical therapists. After each therapy session, physical therapists completed a validated physical therapist ease-of-care questionnaire. Lower scores on the time efficiency and convenience subscales indicated more positive responses, whereas a higher score on the satisfaction subscale indicated a more positive response. Therapists were considered responders when their average scores were 2 or lower on all items of the time efficiency and convenience subscales, or 4 or higher on both items of the satisfaction subscale. Higher percentages of physical therapists were responders for the fentanyl iontophoretic transdermal system than for morphine intravenous patient-controlled analgesia on the subscales that assessed time efficiency, convenience, and satisfaction. Higher percentages of physical therapists favored the fentanyl iontophoretic transdermal system than favored morphine intravenous patient-controlled analgesia. The study had the following limitations. The trial was limited by its open-label design. And, physical therapists were more familiar with intravenous patient-controlled analgesia than with the fentanyl iontophoretic transdermal system. The findings demonstrate benefits to physical therapists of using the fentanyl iontophoretic transdermal system over morphine intravenous patient-controlled analgesia in terms of time efficiency, convenience, and satisfaction. Lead author Dr. Michael Bourne is chairman of the Division of Orthopedic Surgery of the Salt Lake Orthopedic Clinic at St. Mark's Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah. Next, aerobic exercise alters analgesia and neurotrophin-3 synthesis in an animal model of chronic widespread pain by Dr. Nina Sharma, Janelle Rials, Dr. Byron Gajewski, and Dr. Douglas Wright. Present literature and clinical practice provide strong support for the use of aerobic exercise in reducing pain and improving function for individuals with chronic musculoskeletal pain syndromes. However, the molecular basis for the positive actions of exercise remains poorly understood. Recent studies suggest that neurotrophin-3 may act in an analgesic fashion in various pain states. The purpose of the present study was to examine the effects of moderate-intensity aerobic exercise on pain-like behavior and neurotrophin-3 in an animal model of widespread pain. This was a repeated measures observational cross-sectional study. A total of 40 female mice were used in this study. Half were injected with normal saline with a pH of 7.2. 
and the other half were injected with acidic saline with a pH of 4. The saline was injected in the gastrocnemius muscle to induce widespread hyperalgesia, and the mice exercised for three weeks. Cutaneous and muscular mechanical sensitivity were assessed. Neurotrophin-3 was quantified in two hind-limb skeletal muscles for both messenger RNA and protein levels after exercise training. Data were analyzed with two-factor analysis of variance or repeated measures. Moderate-intensity aerobic exercise reduced cutaneous and deep-tissue hyperalgesia induced by acidic saline and stimulated neurotrophin-3 synthesis in skeletal muscle. The increase in neurotrophin-3 was more pronounced at the protein level compared with mRNA expression. In addition, the increase in neurotrophin-3 protein was significant in the gastrocnemius muscle but not in the soleus muscle, suggesting that exercise can preferentially target neurotrophin-3 synthesis in specific muscle types. The results of this study are limited to animal models and cannot be generalized to chronic pain syndromes in humans. This is the first study demonstrating the effect of exercise on deep tissue mechanical hyperalgesia in a rodent model of pain and providing a possible molecular basis for exercise training in reducing muscular pain. Lead author Dr. Nina Sharma is Research Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City, Kansas. Next, Do As I Do, Exercise Habits of Physical Therapists, Physical Therapist Assistants, and Student Physical Therapists by Dr. Julia Chevin and Dr. Esther Haskvitz. Physical therapy practitioners are among the many healthcare professionals who can counsel their patients to address the public healthcare concern of physical inactivity. Healthcare providers who are physically active themselves are more likely to counsel patients on the benefits of activity. The purposes of this study were 1. to examine the leisure time physical activity habits of physical therapists, physical therapist assistants, and student physical therapists in the United States using the recommendations of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and American College of Sports Medicine, and 2. to compare these habits with those of the general population and other healthcare professionals. A cross-sectional survey design was used. There were two data sources a random sample of American Physical Therapy Association members completed an online survey that included questions about physical activity habits worded in the same manner as the leisure time activities section of the 2005 National Health Interview Survey. The final study sample comprised 1,238 participants, 923 physical therapists, 210 student physical therapists, and 105 physical therapist assistants. The 2005 National Health Interview Survey public use data files were the source for the same information about the general U.S. population and for a subset of healthcare professionals. Rates of participation in vigorous and moderate physical activity were analyzed. Physical therapists, physical therapist assistants, and student physical therapists exercised at higher rates than adults and health diagnosing professionals in the 2005 National Health Interview Survey. The study may be limited by sampling and response bias. This study identified that physical therapists, physical therapist assistants, and student physical therapists are meeting Centers for Disease Control and Prevention 
and American College of Sports Medicine physical activity guidelines at higher rates than the U.S. adult population and health diagnosing professionals. These rates exceed the physical activity targets set for adults in Healthy People 2010. Lead author Dr. Julia Shevin is Professor of Physical Therapy in the Department of Physical Therapy at Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts. Next, access to physical therapy services among medically underserved adults, a mixed method study by Dr. Christine McCallum. This mixed method case study examined access issues related to physical therapy services among medically underserved adults within an Ohio community. Three community health care clinics served as the units of analysis. Eleven health care providers and 110 patients participated in the study, and documents from local, state, and national resources were reviewed. The results revealed that structural, utilization of care, and outcome barriers existed. A lack of accessible physical therapy providers for medically underserved adults and a lack of standardized screening or assessment processes to identify physical mobility problems among people with chronic health conditions were found. Inadequate knowledge about the full scope of physical therapist practice existed, which may impede access to those individuals most in need of services. Opportunities are present for physical therapist involvement in screening, wellness and prevention, consultation, education, and program development among medically underserved adults. However, challenges exist due to a lack of human and financial resources and the current structure of our healthcare system, which focuses on acute and chronic care rather than prevention. A bottom line for this article is available online and in print. Dr. Christine McCallum is Clinical Associate Professor and Director of Clinical Education in the Division of Physical Therapy at Walsh University in North Canton, Ohio. Next, Relationship Between Dynamic Balance Measures and Functional Performance in Community-Dwelling Elderly People by Ankur Desai, Valerie Goodman, Naz Kapadia, Dr. Barbara Shea, and Dr. Tony Sturm. Poor Balance Control Mobility restrictions and fall injuries are serious problems for many older adults. The purpose of this cross-sectional observational study was to evaluate a new dynamic standing balance assessment test for identifying individuals at risk for falling in a group of community-dwelling older adults. Participants were 72 community-dwelling older adults who were receiving rehabilitation in a geriatric day hospital. A dynamic balance assessment test protocol was developed based on the concept of the sensory organization test and the clinical test of sensory interaction and balance. The dynamic balance assessment consists of six tasks performed on a normal floor surface and repeated on a sponge surface. A flexible pressure mat was used to record the foot's center of pressure on both surfaces and loss of balance was recorded. Balance performance also was evaluated using the Berg Balance Scale, the Timed Up and Go Test, Gait Speed, and the 6-Minute Walk Test. Based on self-report, 47 participants were classified as fallers and 25 were non-fallers. No significant differences were noted between the faller group and the non-faller group for demographic variables or medications. 
The Dynamic Balance Assessment composite scores, which were derived from analysis of center of pressure excursions of the six tasks performed on the sponge surface, were able to distinguish between fallers and non-fallers. Of the clinical tests, only the timed up and go test was able to differentiate between the faller and non-faller groups. A prospective study is needed to confirm the current findings, and testing should be expanded to a larger and more diverse sample. The findings indicate that analysis of the extent and amount of center of pressure displacements during selected tasks and under different surface conditions is an appropriate method to assess dynamic standing balance controls and can discriminate between fallers and non-fallers among community-dwelling elderly people. A bottom line for this article is available online and in print. Lead author Anker Desai is professional practice leader physiotherapy at Scarborough General Hospital in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Next, functional gait assessment, concurrent, discriminative, and predictive validity in community-dwelling older adults by Dr. Diane Risley and Dr. Niraj Kumar. The functional gait assessment is a reliable and valid measure of gait-related activities. The purpose of this prospective cohort study was to determine the concurrent, discriminative, and predictive validity of the functional gait assessment in community-dwelling older adults. 35 older adults between 60 and 90 years of age completed the Activity-Specific Balance Confidence Scale, Berg Balance Scale, Dynamic Gait Index, Timed Up-and-Go Test, and Functional Gait Assessment during one session. Falls were tracked by having participants complete a monthly fall calendar for six months. Spearman correlation coefficients were used to determine concurrent validity among the tests. To determine the optimum scores to classify fall risk, sensitivity, specificity, and positive and negative likelihood ratios were calculated for the functional gait assessment in classifying fall risk based on the published criterion scores of the dynamic gait index and timed up-and-go test and for the functional gait assessment, timed up-and-go test, and dynamic gait index in identifying prospective falls. Receiver operator curves with area under the curve were used to determine the effectiveness of the functional gait assessment in classifying fall risk and of the dynamic gait index, timed up and go test, and functional gait assessment in identifying prospective falls. The functional gait assessment correlated with the activity-specific balance confidence scale, Berg balance scale, and timed up and go test. A functional gait assessment score of 22 or less out of 30 provides both discriminative and predictive validity. The functional gait assessment provided 100% sensitivity, 72% specificity, a positive likelihood ratio of 3.6, and a negative likelihood ratio of 0 to predict prospective falls. The study was limited by the length of time of follow-up and the small sample size that did not allow for evaluation of criterion scores by decade. The functional gait assessment with a cutoff score of 22 out of 30 is effective in classifying fall risk in older adults and predicting unexplained falls in community-dwelling older adults. This article is the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Jennifer Brack. Lead author Dr. Diane Risley is assistant professor in the Department of Rehabilitation Science at the State University of New York, University at Buffalo, 
in Buffalo, New York. Next, validation of a new device to measure post-surgical scar adherence by Dr. Giorgio Ferriero, Stefano Vercelli, Dr. Ludovic Salgovic, Valeria Stisi, and Francesco Sartorio. Scarring after surgery can lead to a wide range of disorders. At present, the degree of scar adhesion is assessed manually and by ordinal scales. This article describes a new device, the adhermeter, to measure scar adhesion and assesses its validity, reliability, and sensitivity to change. This was a reliability and validity study that was conducted at the Scientific Institute of Veruno. Two independent raters, a physical therapist and a physical therapist student, used the adhermeter to measure scar mobility and contralateral normal skin in a sample of 25 patients with adherent post-surgical scars before and after physical therapy. Two indexes of scar mobility, the adherence's surface mobility index and the adherence severity index, were calculated. Their correlation with the Vancouver scar scale and its pliability subscale was assessed for the validity analysis. Both the surface mobility index and the adherence severity index showed good to excellent intra-rater reliability and inter-rater reliability before and after physical therapy, correlated moderately with the Vancouver scar scale and its pliability subscale only before physical therapy, and were able to detect changes. A limitation of this study is that the measurement is based on the rater's evaluation of force to stretch the skin and on the patient's judgment of comfort. The adhere meter showed a good level of reliability, validity, and sensitivity to change. Further studies are needed to confirm these results in larger cohorts and to assess the device's validity for other types of scars. A bottom line for this article is available online and in print. Lead author Dr. Giorgio Ferriero is physiatrist at the Fondazione Salvatore Magari and the Instituto Scientifico di Veruno, Servizio di Fisiatria Occupazionale ed Ergonomia in Veruno, Italy. Next, spondyloarthritis in a patient with unilateral buttock pain and history of Crohn disease by Rogelio Coronado, Charles Sheets, Dr. Chad Cook, and Dr. William Boissonault. Patients with inflammatory spinal conditions related to spondyloarthritis are rarely seen by primary care practitioners. However, patients with a history of inflammatory bowel disease and chronic low back or buttock pain should be examined carefully for the presence of spondyloarthritis, as proper management may include referral to a rheumatologist and appropriate medical intervention. A 27-year-old woman with a six-month history of posterior buttock pain was referred for physical therapy with a diagnosis of piriformis syndrome. During the second physical therapy visit, a non-mechanical source of lumbopelvic pain was suspected, and the patient was referred for medical consultation. The patient underwent evaluation by a rheumatologist and was eventually diagnosed with spondyloarthritis associated with inflammatory bowel disease. 
The patient initiated treatment with anti-tumor necrosis factor medication to address the spondyloarthritis. Medical management resulted in significant improvement in all outcome measures. Clinical suspicion of spondyloarthritis is raised when specific historical examination and imaging findings are present. The post-test probability of spondyloarthritis is increased with the presence of inflammatory back pain and specific spondyloarthritic features such as a positive history of inflammatory bowel disease, radiographic evidence of sacroiliitis, and improvement with anti-inflammatory medication. Referral of patients with these findings for a rheumatological evaluation is warranted as these diseases are managed effectively with specific treatment. Lead author Rogelio Coronado is a doctoral student in the Department of Physical Therapy at the College of Public Health and Health Professions, University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. At the time of this case, Mr. Coronado was enrolled in the Manual Therapy Fellowship Program at Duke University. Next, ongoing walking recovery two years after locomotor training in a child with severe incomplete spinal cord injury by Dr. Emily Fox, Dr. Nicole Tester, Dr. Chetan Padkey, Dr. Preeti Nair, Dr. Claudia Senesak, Dr. Dina Howland, and Dr. Andrea Behrman. The authors previously reported on walking recovery in a non-ambulatory child with chronic, severe, incomplete cervical spinal cord injury after 76 sessions of locomotor training. Although clinical measures did not predict his recovery, reciprocal patterned leg movements developed, affording recovery of independent walking with a reverse rolling walker. The long-term functional limitations and secondary complications often associated with pediatric onset spinal cord injury necessitate continued follow-up of children with spinal cord injury. Therefore, the purpose of this case report is to describe this child's walking function and musculoskeletal growth and development during the two years since his participation in a locomotor training program and his subsequent walking recovery. Following locomotor training, the child attended elementary school as a full-time ambulator. He was evaluated at baseline, which was one month after locomotor training and at one year and two years after locomotor training. Examination of walking function included measures of walking independence, gait speed and spatiotemporal parameters, gait kinematics, and daily step activity. Growth and development were assessed by tracking his height, weight, incidence of musculoskeletal complications, and gross motor task performance. Over the two years, the child continued to ambulate independently with a reverse rolling walker, increasing his fastest gait speed. Spatiotemporal and kinematic features of his walking improved and daily step activity increased. Height and weight remained on their pre-injury trajectory and were within age-appropriate norms. The child experienced only minor musculoskeletal complications. Additionally, he gained the ability to use reciprocal patterned leg movements during locomotor tasks, such as assisted stair climbing and independent tricycle pedaling. Two years after recovery of walking, this child, with incomplete spinal cord injury, had maintained and improved his walking function and experienced age-appropriate growth and development. A video of the child's ongoing walking recovery is available online. Lead author Dr. Emily Fox is a doctoral candidate in the Rehabilitation Sciences Doctoral Program in the Department of Physical Therapy 
College of Public Health and Health Professions at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. Last this month, the revised APTA Code of Ethics for the Physical Therapist and Standards of Ethical Conduct for the Physical Therapist Assistant, Theory, Purpose, Process, and Significance, by Dr. Laura Lee Swisher, Peggy Hiller, and the APTA Task Force to Revise the Core Ethics Documents. In June 2009, the House of Delegates of the American Physical Therapy Association passed a major revision of the Association's Code of Ethics for Physical Therapists and the Standards of Ethical Conduct for the Physical Therapist Assistant. The revised documents will be effective July 1, 2010. The purposes of this article are, one, to provide a historical, professional, and theoretical context for this important revision, two, to describe the four-year revision process, three, to examine major features of the documents, and four, to discuss the significance of the revisions from the perspective of the maturation of physical therapy as a doctoring profession. The process for revision is delineated within the context of history and the bylaws of the American Physical Therapy Association. The revised documents represent a significant change in format, level of detail, and scope of application. Previous versions of the Code of Ethics and Standards of Ethical Conduct for the Physical Therapist Assistant have delineated very broad general principles with specific obligations spelled out in the Ethics and Judicial Committee's Guide for Professional Conduct and Guide for Conduct of the Physical Therapist Assistant. In contrast to the current documents, the revised documents address all five roles of the physical therapist, delineate ethical obligations in organizational and business contexts, and align with the tenets of Vision 2020. The significance of this revision is discussed within historical parameters, the implications for physical therapists and physical therapist assistants, the maturation of the profession, societal accountability and moral community, potential regulatory implications, and the inclusive and deliberative process of moral dialogue by which changes were developed, revised, and approved. Dr. Laura Lee Swisher was co-chair of the APTA Task Force to Revise the Core Ethics Documents. She is Associate Professor and Coordinator of Professional Education at the School of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Sciences and Assistant Dean for Interprofessional Education at the College of Medicine, University of South Florida in Tampa, Florida. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.